as we move towards Christmas Eve and services there, we've been looking at the Old Testament. And I know that uh, uh, your worship folder says Luke chapter 1, but we're going to start in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. And we're going to see some more things from the Old Testament that deal with the birth of Christ. And while you're going there, just uh, little secrets that you know, I carry an extra battery with me for the microphone, and, and my, my leg is on fire, and I can't imagine why it's on fire. So I reach in, and there's the battery. It must have been connected, must have touched my keys, and the battery is still really hot. Uh, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm strangely moved and warmed by, the, by what's going on. I, uh, I don't know what was going on. Daniel chapter 9, and we'll be reading several things, so uh, just let me pray for us as we get there. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit now to come upon us to open our eyes, that we might have understanding of your word, that we might see with clarity how you call us to live. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Now, just some background before we read this portion from Daniel chapter 9. In this chapter, he is concluding, Daniel concludes in his mind that the 70-year period of Israel's captivity is just about over. And he has had a vision in chapter 8, which he has had some uh, clarity from the Lord on, but he does not fully understand what is going on here. So this is in line with Jeremiah chapter 25 and the prophecy of the Lord of of the deliverance of Israel. Well, Daniel then begins to pray. He begins to pray for himself and for his people. He begins to confess his sin and uh, as, as as uh, as a leader of his people to confess the sins of the people as well. That God would forgive these people and restore them to the land. And as a result of his not fully comprehending the vision in chapter 8, the Lord sends Gabriel to him, the angel Gabriel, to help him understand and to clarify what the Lord is doing in this vision. So he enables him to see with a clear perspective both the near and the far. And so often prophecy is in the Old Testament is like that. There is a short-term fulfillment, and there is a long-term fulfillment as well. We read in Isaiah, and that chapter from uh, Isaiah, uh, very specifically 7.14, has a short-term fulfillment and application, but its long-term fulfillment is in the birth of Christ. So let me read from Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have, come, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, 
So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in, in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are now to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined." And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, some of those things, you go, oh, what does that mean? Well, we're not going to deal with some of those things. The important thing that you'll find is in verse 25. Gabriel comes to Daniel. And tells him not just about the deliverance of the people who have been in captivity all these years that God has promised to free, but he brings the message of the ultimate release from the captivity of sin in the Messiah, the Prince. So Gabriel comes in the time of Daniel and says, Daniel, here's the clarification of your vision. The Messiah is going to come. And then Gabriel leaves. Now turn to Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 and following. For 600 years, there is no mention again of Gabriel or a discussion of this. Now, it's been about 400 years since the last uh, thing was written for the Old Testament. And here we have in the beginning of Luke, we have the appearance of Gabriel. After 600 years, and the last thing he said was, look for the Messiah, he is coming. Here in Luke chapter 1, he says what? The Messiah is come. Let me read from Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bondservant of the Lord, 
Be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed. 600 years ago, the angel came and said, The Messiah is coming. He comes to a young woman betrothed to a man and says, The Messiah is coming and you're going to give birth to him. And you are going to give birth to him. Now, Mary is betrothed to Jesus, and we talk about this almost every year. So just a review for you. In this betrothal process, we would call this engagement, but it is much more than engagement. Okay? It probably lasted for uh, the period of a year or so. Mary was quite young in her teens, early teens, probably 14, 15, 16 in that neighborhood. Joseph is probably older. During the betrothal time, it was just like a marriage. It carried with it all the legal aspects of a marriage, but yet they lived apart. They did not live as man and wife at this time, but she was legally and morally obligated and belonged to Joseph as he did to her. Mary was, for all intents and purposes, his wife, except in the physical aspect. So the period of engagement, as I said, lasted about a year. And Gabriel comes to this young girl, betrothed to be married, still a virgin, and Gabriel's words are shocking to her. Congratulations, Mary. You're going to be pregnant. Okay? Now, now, this is not what you want to hear as an engaged woman in the first century. Even if it's by an angel, these words are not, it, it, in my humanness, I, I don't see them as welcome, but yet Mary says, may it be done unto me as the, according to the Lord's word. She is completely obedient to the Lord and what he wants. And when the angel says, guess what, Mary, you're pregnant, it is not that simple. It is pregnant with significance. That is the, the emphasis of the Greek in this context, pregnant with significance. Now, I would never say, ladies, that your pregnancy was not significant. Okay? That I would not say that. But you understand, there's a difference between the birth of Randy and the birth of Jesus. Okay? If you had to pick one or the other, I don't think I would win out. Okay? I think we would want the significance of the birth of Christ. And that is what we are saying here. Now, we're told that the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. This is a word that is used in two other places, and it comes from the Old Testament. It deals with creation. It deals with creation and the work of the Holy Spirit at that time. The universe has been made and we're told the Spirit hovered over the earth, overshadowed the earth, and began to bring form and, and shape and fashion it into its beauty and its, its present condition. The same word is used to describe the work of the Spirit within Mary. We also see this word used as it talks about the Shekinah glory, as it overshadowed the people of Israel, the promised people, as his presence was demonstrated in the tabernacle. Okay? And as the cloud led the people through the desert. This is the type of activity that we are talking about. The Lord comes in his glory and is present there in this fashion. And the same thing here with Mary. The glory of the Lord himself has come down and has overshadowed Mary. The Holy Spirit becomes an agent of creation in the womb of this young girl. And there's nothing in the text, there's nothing in any of the Gospels that even give the remotest consideration of any human activity here. This is the work of our Heavenly Father. It is exclusively the power of God acting upon Mary. And Joseph is shocked at the news. So he's like, well, I haven't been a part of this, so what's going on here? It's the work of our Heavenly Father. The sovereign, almighty creator 
who makes and upholds the universe, has created life in this young girl. It is solely the work of God. It doesn't happen in in the normal processes of the human mind or the way that we think. It is supernatural. And many people will try to discount the importance of the idea of the virgin birth and, and, and put aside this as if it wasn't an essential thing to believe in or would deny its importance when it comes to the incarnation. That Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, left that hand, left the right hand, left that spot, came and took on the form of a man. Philippians chapter 2, the great Christ hymn, where he humbles himself and looks like us. And in the midst of this, he is totally human and totally what? Totally divine. How do we understand that? I can't. It is simply beyond me, but yet that is the way Christ was. The angel Gabriel comes and says very clearly, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is unfathomable in this mystery that all the fullness of deity should dwell in Christ, Colossians chapter 2. It is necessary that the entrance of God should come in this world, should come in this fashion, that the virgin should conceive. This means that when God came into this world as the Savior of the world, he was divine and he was human. Now, what is Mary's response to this? Well, let's look at verse 34. Mary's, uh, she's not oblivious to these things. She knows how babies are born. She knows how these things come about. In verse 34, she says, how can this be? How can this be? Now, I remember, and, and perhaps I'm not the only one, sitting in a classroom asking a, a professor or a teacher a question. And, you know, it's, it's a complex issue and you want some clarification. And I would ask a question and then the professor would, would put their glasses down and begin to pontificate for three or four minutes and then look at me and say, well, Mr. Jenkins, does that answer your question? And in my mind, I'm going, I don't know what he said. Okay, but I don't want to appear too stupid, so I go, well, thank you very much. That, that's good. Okay? Now, maybe I'm the only one, but that has happened to me more than one occasion. And Mary says, how can this be? She asks the angel of the Lord a question, and what does the angel of the Lord say? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the offspring shall be called the Son of God. I'm not sure that really answered her question. So the angel gives her a little bit more. Look at verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. I think in the cognitive processes of her brain, she wants to ask another question, but she doesn't. She simply rests in the fact that the Lord is going to do this. That the Lord is going to do this. And in fact, Scripture through pages and pages, has been preparing us to understand these things. Genesis chapter 18 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Job chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah 32, You are Lord God. It is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Can the Lord do this? What's it say in 37? For nothing will be impossible with God. No purpose of his can be thwarted. And the time has come that the impossible thing must be done. 
a virgin must conceive. God enters into this world and never ceases to be infinite and omnipotent, but yet he comes as a child. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, like Mary's faith, our faith has to rest on the sovereignty of God. He doesn't guarantee us an explanation. He only guarantees us the grace to see us through. He doesn't say, I'm going to do this only if you under- and I want you to live this way only if you understand it. He doesn't do that. He says, here is my grace. This is the life I call you to live. These are the things I call you to believe. Some of them I will explain to you and you will understand. And they will dwell in you and you will rejoice. And other things over here you will not understand. But that does not release us from obedience. Have you ever had that in your life? You, you, you can't understand, you can't explain why you are, feel called to do a certain thing. And no one around you understands it, but yet you do it. The Lord says be obedient. He doesn't say understand it first and then be obedient. The God who comes to Mary is our God as well. And the God who in Mary's life can do the impossible is also the God who is active today who can do the impossible as well. And Mary's trust and faith in him does not rest upon her ability to understand him and define him. It rests in his character. It rests in his person. He is this way, and we are called to find peace in that. J.C. Ryle, the Reformed theologian, writes, Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. In Sunday school, we talked about, does God change or is he the same? Do you want a God who changes his mind? Can you even dream of an omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-knowing God, an eternal God who would change and change his mind? Or is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? Let's go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom will have no end. There are three words in there that we, in particular, don't like in our society. Throne, reign, and kingdom. We do not have a king in this country. In fact, there was some, some discussion about that some 230 years ago or so, that we shouldn't have a king. Okay? And we tend to the side of democracy or representative democracy or republic. These things of the kingdom we don't like. It is not an attra- These things of kingship we don't like because it is not an attractive system for us. Rule by king is, we think, maybe a more primitive form or something like that. We're not interested in it. We don't like kings. We don't like power central, centralized in the hand of one individual. Why don't we like power centralized in the hands of one individual? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Now, C.S. Lewis writes about democracy, and he says, A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that those grounds are not true. 
I find, this is Lewis writing, I find that they're not true without looking any further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is mankind is so fallen that no one man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellow citizens. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. Lewis says, I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no man fit to be a master. Lewis is saying, the reason we don't like kings, the reason we have a problem with that is because of our sinful nature. Because the more you centralize in one person's hand power, the more it corrupts. And he says, I'm not worthy of any of that. That's why we spread power out across the board, across into other men's hands. But what if we had a king who was just? What if we had a king who was righteous? What if we had a king who never made mistakes, who knew no sin? Then we would cling to that king and follow him wherever he would lead us. Because he would lead us in the things that are right and that are just and that are beautiful and that are perfect. And this is the kingship and the reign and the authority that comes with this child that is being conceived in Mary's womb. God broke into the universe as a king. Not as a king that we understand, but as a perfect and righteous king. Now, there are four words that make up, that are listed here, that make up the, the character of this king. The first word is found in 35. It is holy. The reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Holy means pure and good, without any defect, without any deficiency, without any blemish. The word is full of the things of hope because it means that this person is fit to be the spotless Lamb of God, the only sacrifice that will take away our sin. Unholy kings create the need for power to be spread out. A righteous king is the one that we follow because he does what is right and what is good. He is holy. The second word, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called holy, the Son of God. The second is the Son of God. This means that when God came into this world, the person was both human and divine. The king who rules the world is not just the king of Israel and not just the son of David, but he will sit on this throne forever. And he will rule with righteousness and justice and power and authority. The second word is his name. The third word is his name itself, Jesus Matthew, in his uh, account of the birth of Christ, in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Savior. Therefore, the king of the universe is given the name that means he will save his people. That's why he came into the world, right? He came into the world to save us from our sins, to give his life as atoning sacrifice for us. And then the final word that makes up the... the the character list of this king is the word forever. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The king of Israel is the king of the universe. 
He will never be replaced. There will never be an election. Can we have a better Savior? Can we get him out of office and get a new one? No, he is as good as it gets. Why? Because he alone is perfect and righteous and holy. His kingdom is forever. Therefore, our salvation is guaranteed because he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christmas is about the creator of the universe who acted according to his will and his plan in the person of his son, Jesus the Christ. And the son has come into the world to save those who were sinners. And that's all of us. He came to give his life that those who are called according to his purposes and hear his voice, their lives will be forever changed. First Timothy chapter 1, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul said, of which I am the chief. Well, that description fits all of us. It was the death of Christ that paid for our sin. But each of our sins, each of our hearts are so corrupt that it took the death of Christ to find forgiveness, even for an individual life. This child was born to die that we might be freed from the power and the penalty of sin. Hebrews says, in flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death. Friends, this is what Christmas is about. Christ comes into this world and changes it forever through his power of his love and his mercy and his ability to forgive us of our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a child of significance. The message from Gabriel, who was silent for 600 years until you sent him back into the world to talk of the fulfillment of the last message that he gave. This is no ordinary child. This is the Son of God who has come into this world to be our King, that we might follow him, that our lives in, in obedience would be lived after him and the things of him, that his word his desires might shape us and form us. That we might declare these things to all those around us. That the birth of Christ may not be something that we, we pull out once a year, but it might live within us all the time. For you have entered the world in this form, and we are forever changed. Heavenly Father, don't let us forget these things. That you have called us to a life that is different And you have given us the ability to live it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.